Fake news is really cheap and it's designed to hook you in. And unfortunately right now, the easiest way to make fake news is often just to accurately report what Donald Trump says. Welcome to the art of post-truth. My name is Hayden Prowse and joining me this evening at Shoreditch House is ex-WikiLeaks hacker turned investigative journalist James Ball to discuss the era of post-truth politics, exploring everything from the Brexiteers' mysterious 350 million for the NHS to Donald Trump's entire Twitter feed. I like the word bullshit because you know it when you see it and you certainly know it when you smell it. But it's got a proper meaning too. This is James Ball, everyone. I just thought, because James is so interesting, he's done so many interesting things, WikiLeaks, The Guardian, BuzzFeed, lots of exposés that people might want to talk about. thought perhaps we'd do a short interview first, asking him about how he first got into this stuff, what Julian Assange is like, and then we'd get into some bullshit and, and post-truth and fake news, and then we'd have a big Q&A where everyone can kind of get involved and do some discussing, and we can all get outraged at each other. So, James Ball, I've talked with you a lot at various different things, I'm always amazed at your sort of recall and your level of, you know, authority when you, when you come into an issue. And I normally shut up when you start talking. Um, is that part of the reason Julian Assange employed you in the first place? I sort of met him in a Turkish restaurant um, at sort of on a Saturday night with my boss and my boss's boss. Um, I was at a sort of TV production company and um, I was introduced as the um, code monkey, which my boss had heard before and thought was a compliment. Um, not so much. So, Arden, you were working for a production company at the time. Yeah. But then you later worked for him directly. Yeah. So what he sort of headhunted you from this production company. Yeah, it was sort of one of those where it kind of worked. I, I do, you know, I, I am a nerd. I do know how to look through the data. We got stuff out of it. And the Iraq War Logs, uh, that was a documentary on BBC? Um, it was Channel 4 Dispatches and Al Jazeera. Um, so after you produced that, you then went to work for him? Yeah, sort of pretty much literally <clears throat> two days after. I know from being with Julian and in the room with Julian, he very deliberately chose to tie what was essentially his own utterly chaotic private practices into WikiLeaks so that people would see it as a free speech struggle. Do you know, I, I once saw him at the um, Occupy March, and I think he was joking, but he said to the... You know how everyone used to repeat things at the Occupy March to get it to the back of the crowd? And he said, you're all individuals. <laughs> yes, I remember that one. <laughs> and everyone said, we're all individuals, which is obviously a life of Brian reference. Anyway, so after WikiLeaks, so you left acrimoniously, and it wasn't so, uh, you know, you don't write to each other anymore. Um, and then you subsequently worked for The Guardian for a long time, and some of your reports were amazing. Your report on the keys to the internet was one of my favourite reports. That was fun. That was amazing. There are two keys that control the entire internet, and you turn them off and the internet goes down, and James found them. Six keys. Seven keys? Seven keys. Live fact checking. <laughs> Do you want to tell them about that? Keys to the internet, it's great fun. Um, it's basically the backup. It's supposed to be the security at the middle of it, and... They slightly overplay what these actually do. In the future, they could be incredibly significant, but if everyone sort of followed what these do and it properly caught on as it's meant to, it would mean that about eight different types of hacking attack wouldn't work on any of us anymore. But because it's so elaborate, because it's set up for if it actually does roll out fully rather than on like the secure bits it does now, 
it would be the core of the internet. And they're in these sealed off, like magnetically sealed bunkers, eye scanning all of it. And so there's this huge, huge security. It's all very solemn. It's the first time a journalist's been in there. And someone slammed a safe door, locked three of the key holders of the internet in this eight by eight cage, alarms going off everywhere. And they had no idea how to fix it and so set off a fire alarm as well. And you had this sort of priceless moment because we had a camera woman with us as well, where these keys that they've made this big point have never left this utterly secure, sealed from the outside world room. We'd sort of, we were stood outside in this Los Angeles data centre and I was sort of frenetically trying to, without moving a muscle to alert anyone, get the camera woman to notice that in this pocket protector of this uh, guy was one of these sort of famous keys to the internet just sitting outside on a Los Angeles street. Yeah. So James uh, Ball is a mainstream media shill. Do you want to explain to everyone what a shill is? Does everyone know what a shill is? A shill is someone who is paid to sell you something. It's like a really cheap salesman. So the, the idea that a lot of people who have no trust in mainstream media is, is we're not here to tell you the truth. We're here because our corporate paymasters want you to hear a version of it. Yeah. Um, I say that's not true, but then I would say that, wouldn't I? Because you work for BuzzFeed. Exactly. You and... know, that famous bastion of capitalism. <laughs> I, I really don't know, I guess. Yeah, is, is BuzzFeed fake news? Uh, so do you want to give us a quick uh, breakdown of, of your book? So, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use one, one kind of quite fun example of it, which is there is a story that went viral everywhere, sort of, among the heartlands of America, among Trump supporters during the 2016 campaign. And it was that with the help of Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton had stockpiled 30,000 guillotines. And with these guillotines, um, she was going to, when she became president, arrange for 2 million people to be shipped to a facility in Alaska because Alaska has great transport links. Um, <laughs> which where they had um, an internment camp that would fit a million people. Um, and these guillotines were going to be set up and they were all going to be Second Amendment uh, supporters. And using these 30,000 guillotines, they were going to be executed within the space of an hour. This is sort of my absolute favourite of all fake news stories because it's such obvious tosh, you know... There's got no basis to it. It's got no evidence. It's on a site that looks nonsense. And it got tens of thousands of shares. It was seen by hundreds of thousands of people. And at least some of them seem to really, like, fully believe it. Now, if I'm trying to disprove that, how do I do that? I, I can and I did look through purchase orders. And I did find a purchase order for tens of thousands of guillotines. But... As anyone who's done an art project or worked in an office knows, you know those little slidey things that you use to strip paper? Yeah, it was those. Um, I sort of looked at the world's biggest building, which is a Boeing um, sort of manufacturing hangar, and worked out if you turned that into six foot by nine foot cells, how many people it would hold. And I can kind of go, look how obvious it would be if any of this were true. And you've got no evidence of it. But if someone goes, yeah, but have you been there and checked every bit of Alaska for this plan? No, I haven't. And this is sort of the nightmare of fake news for those of us who like to think we're proper reporters. 
I would have to put in a ton of work. And if you really believe that story, I'm not going to change your mind. Like, firstly, you're not going to trust me. And even if for some reason you do, I can't prove something that's not true. It's really easy to talk about fake news because fake news is always someone else's problem. But I actually think we have kind of a bigger problem. I've been saying, you know, fake news is really cheap and it's designed to hook you in. Now, you could say that's true of clickbait. You could say that's true of a lot of things with the business model of the internet. If we're just trying to tell the grabbiest version of a story as cheaply as we can, because that gets the most clicks and each one of those gets us those fractions of a penny to become profitable then really fake news is just the end result of a bad business model. And that gets a bit scarier because if you're the BBC and people trust a fringe site that three people run more than you, is the problem the fringe site or is it that you lost their trust in the first place? And the even bigger problem really begins with two blondes and a bus. Um, and you've got Boris Johnson, you've got Donald Trump, and you've got a bus with 350 million on it. And unfortunately, right now, the easiest way to make fake news is often just to accurately report what Donald Trump says. And so we don't just have an internet problem. We don't just have this kind of, you know, boo Facebook thing. And we don't just have a Russia problem. The annoying thing is all of those problems are real. Um, what I like to think think of as as having is a sort of wider problem with bullshit. And I like the word bullshit because you know it when you see it and you certainly know it when you smell it. Um, but it's got a proper meaning too. And what a bullshitter will do is just tell you whatever they want to be true in that moment or whatever they want you to believe in that moment. It won't matter that it disagrees with what they said yesterday and what they'll say tomorrow. It doesn't matter that you can prove it false. All it matters is it tells the best story to the crowd you're in front of. And so that's why I kind of say we've ended up in this weird, toxic situation where we are surrounded by piles and piles of bullshit and fake news and stuff like that are symptoms of it. And, yeah, that's roughly the thesis of the book, and you can tell how cheery and sunny and optimistic it is. <laughs> So we thought what we'd do before we broke down some of the chapters and also I wanted to open it up as soon as possible to everyone, but we thought we'd do a small quiz, first of all, to see who could tell fake from real news. So who thinks uh, it's true that Kim Jong-un killed his uncle with an anti-aircraft gun? Hands up. True. True or false? True, hands up. False. False. OK, we're mostly on false and, yeah, false. He did kill his uncle. He, in fact, killed two of them. Um, but one, it was reported at one point he'd been torn apart by a pack of wild dogs, uh, and then the anti-aircraft battery story, whereas, you know, he was a civilised and calm man and just had him shot. Um, <laughs> did Donald Trump oh, yeah. say, if I were ever going to run for president, I'd run as a Republican? Those guys have the dumbest voters. Yes? Yeah, it sounds like False? It's false. It is one of the most commonly believed bits of uh, left-wing left targeted fake news. Do you know what's weird about that? Is I, I saw it as a picture and thought I'd seen it as a clip from a TV show. That's just it. That's why those pictures are brilliant. And a whole bunch of things that you see like that. The fake news that you fall for is always the stuff that buys into what you already believe. Uh, so your first chapter... Can you just talk about your first chapter, which is basically about the last, you know, two years... 
and from, I guess, our perspective, the catastrophic things that have happened. Uh, how has fake news um, affected things like Brexit or created things like Brexit, things like Donald Trump in the States? What so I think, it's, I think it's dumb and dangerous any time a political decision happens that you don't agree with to go, this is all about fake news. Like, Donald Trump isn't just elected because we had misinformation because he's a bullshitter. And certainly being misled wasn't the only reason for Brexit. But we shouldn't let that danger stop the fact that we in the UK and the voters in the US made two incredibly momentous sort of decisions. Um, And sort of one of the things that bugs me when we come to Brexit is it was one of the most stupidly fought campaigns I've ever seen on the planet. One of the key ones, and the easy one to look at in a room, which I'm going to guess is probably full of Remainers. I mean, you know, not to jump to too many conclusions... 350 million a week was an obvious and dumb lie. And that's why they said it. Because somehow the media jumping on fact-checking it, the Remain campaign jumping on fact-checking it, politicians of all stripes jumping on fact-checking it, people asking questions, we all thought we were so bloody clever. Did we really think Leave was so thick that they used a number that was bad? They used it as bait, and this is often how the information system works at the moment. You say we send the EU 350 million a week and the instinct, especially of nerds like me, is to go, well, actually, that's a very unfair figure because, you see, it's not really 350 million a week because uh, actually way back before Maastricht, Margaret Thatcher negotiated a rebate dependent on the relative GDP growth of the UK versus the EU 27. And so we don't know quite what it's going to be, but usually it's about 97 million. So it's much more like 253 million a week. Um, And then, you know, we can't really use that number because we get regional development funds, we get scientific and innovation funds, we get culture city and uh, other development funds. And of course, we get carbon agricultural uh, policy grants, as we all know. And so it's really much more like 178 million a week. At which point, firstly, unless you're an economist, you have no idea what I'm talking about and I sound like an alien. Um, And secondly, 178 million a week still sounds like quite a big number. And so all you've done is go, yep, their narrative is totally right and I'm just going to quibble on the details in a really out-of-touch way. Um, And so everyone who thought they were being clever, everyone who thought they were catching out leave on that claim repeated their campaign message again and again and again. And Remain didn't have a story to tell because they'd so lost touch with the mood of the country. But the, so the other thing I wanted to ask you is there is this... I mean, people seem to think that fake news is a new phenomenon. But surely that's been the norm throughout history. I think we're probably, weirdly, there's still more good information, good reporting, good journalism and good information out there than there ever has been. You know, you can... Uh, You can search and find Wikipedia on your mobile phone anywhere now. There are more people reading quality news now than there ever have been. There's more good information out there. I think part of it is just we never used to, and certainly the elite never used to have to see the bad information. You know, we talk about filter bubbles now and how everyone's sort of detached from each other. There is no greater filter bubble than living in a kind of small village surrounded by people of your class and your income and all reading the same bloody newspaper, and only one a day. You know, most of us now will read 5, 10, 15 different sources in a day. Like, anyone who is a sort of consumer of news will see more and varied than they used to. You, met, you talk about how 
<laughs> how slow Hillary was, and also the Remain campaign, to catch on to this phenomenon. And the fact that she was not campaigning, was it was Arizona, you know, a week yeah. before the... And, and she kind of... I guess she believed people were sort of smarter than they were or people were sort of less... Um, they felt less cynical about, you know, the traditional forms of media than they were. And she completely misread the situation. So fake news is one thing, but also do we have any understanding right now of how many people are just believing fake news? So is it vast? It's is it, really hard. Is it like to, an iceberg It's situation? really hard to tell what people believe because people tend to answer what they think they should for whoever they're talking to. Like, what was really interesting on this was, do people remember the aerial photos of Trump's inauguration? It's not weird that Trump would get a smaller crowd. It doesn't mean he's less popular. It's Obama, firstly, it was a particularly historic president, but he's a Democrat and lots of Democrats live on the East Coast. It's an easy, short journey. Yeah. There was no ego problem in Trump getting a smaller crowd. He had fewer supporters living nearby. And so that debate had raged so much with so much coverage of the photos that a pollster just showed the two photos, no labels, no captions, and asked people which crowd was bigger. And 15% 15, 15 of Republicans said that the, small, the very obviously no smaller crowd way. was that's, bigger. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. And so ask anyone what they believe and they'll answer it in a weird way. I just wanted to ask you, first of all, before we pass it out to the crowd... Because I never know, because I'm obviously in my bubble, but um, who suffers from this problem most? Is it, is it more egregious on the right or on, on the left? You will only ever spot the fake news of people you disagree with, which kind of also makes us all think each other are thicker. Because it's like, oh, I know all that fake stuff that you believe in, and we might sort of sit doing it. But you will only see the bit of it that is against you. Because you go, that's so obviously untrue, why would they go for it? And then you'll see a headline, and we've all done it. And you get that rush, you see it on Facebook or you see it on Twitter and you get that rush of, I can't believe they're doing this, this is outrageous, and you click share. And then, certainly if you're me, and it's my job to try and think before I do that, hang on, have they done that? Who's actually saying this? What's the full quote? Have I Googled it? And that's sort of how you spot fake news of your side, but it's so much harder to do. And so it does kind of hit all of us. And what's interesting is... Most of the people who make fake news are trying to make money. And so they'll do whatever's going most viral that month. And so fake news, there was still a ton of it in 2015, but it was all just fake celebrity deaths and the slimming and stuff like that, because that went viral. It was 2016 when the world became super political. Who wants to ask a question? You want to ask a question. Hello. Um, I just wondered what role you think that social media outlets can play in preventing the spread of fake news, yeah. and also how much of the onus is on ourselves to prevent it? I think a lot of it is on us. Like, I really, really try and push the five-second rule. Like, any time you're about to share something, if you can just really make yourself kick in and just kind of go, nope, nope, is this actually true? Like, have I checked this? Have I read the article? Like, one amazing thing we could all do would be just read the article before we do it. Um, I mean, you know declare your interest, that helps me as a journalist. But often outlets haven't got the hang of the fact that we only read that little preview bit sometimes. And so, yeah, we have to take some responsibility. And part of why is people say, like, Facebook and Twitter and others bear res some responsibility for this, and I absolutely agree. They have got incredibly wealthy 
off the networks they've created and they're having some quite dangerous effects. And we need to work out what to do with that. What role do you think the law should play in terms of regulating this? With so, intermediaries, for example. I mean, the law's already kind of looking at Yeah, and I mean, it kind of covers all of us on social media as well. And, like, one of the things I think professional journalists have done a really bad job of is explaining why we do stuff like we do. And it's a lot of it is often because we can get sued. And it doesn't make us chicken and it doesn't make us not write stories, but most of my job isn't trying to find out, is this going on? It's trying to go, is it definitely going on? Is it true? Can I join it together? I mean, I've written, you know, I've written stories about, you know, sex crime allegations against royals. I've uh, accused companies of paying millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in bribes. I've accused people of some pretty serious offences. Like, it's not that, you're, that you don't want to do it. It's not that your boss comes and says, this is against our corporate interests. It's, if we go for these guys, we have to be right, because if we're wrong, it's the last story we'll ever publish. Um, and so a lot of it is... We have to write them very carefully. We have to write only what we know. And weirdly, in UK law, there is a big, big extra level of defence. If I write a story as, here is some information, here is what the company says about the information, here is what a campaigner says about the information, even if all of it is stuff I've dug up over six months, if I present it like that, I have much, much better chance of getting it out if I go, here is the latest outrageous scandal in this crook of a company that does this, if I do that, much more likely to lose the suit. And so you get this weird, stilted writing sometimes. And that's so that we can tell you the story, so we can get the information out. And I don't think we communicate that at all in terms of why we do stuff. It's fascinating that, because you, you talk about... So major news organisations like the BBC or BuzzFeed... Um, obviously have this fear of being sued because they are major news organisations and they have money for people to sue for. Um, but there is, this, there is such a lack of trust now in mainstream media organisations that people flee to these sort of alternative sites who are kind of free to say whatever they want because it's a, two guys in the bedroom or they're just seen as completely ridiculous and no-one really believes in them. And it's strange how people suddenly have all these... Well, this new trust for these sort of really alternative yeah. news sites. And I mean, the, 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 the commercial imperative yeah. that you talk about, and it's like they're getting money from clicks. Yeah. So it's strange that there is this renewed trust in these alternative sites when the commercial imperative in those sites is so much greater than in something like the BBC. Yeah. And so as, as a journalist, I have no traffic targets at all. I do not get paid differently if 10 million people read a piece versus 10,000. Um, and... I, you know, we get explicitly told, tell the story as it is. Don't, you know, you know, get a headline on, get an audience to it, do what you can. You know, we want to bring you in, but don't spin the story past the point of truth. And the issue, if, if you're paid by the click, as you are on a lot of these are, especially if you're alternative media, is you want to do stuff that will really bring in an audience. And I can tell you, if you want left-wing people to click a story... Bombshell, explosive, hidden, and why aren't the BBC reporting this? <laughs> you know, suppressed bombshell report that could bring down May's government, dash, and, it's, and you won't find it on the BBC. 
that will get clicks. And then when it turns out to be a sort of routine three-monthly UN subcommittee inspection saying that they have concerns about the welfare system, which they've written every three months for the last 15 years, that's why it's not being reported, because it's not going to bring down any government, even if it was on the front pages. And I guess people also forget that although we do have libel law in this country that in some ways favours people that can afford lawyers to prosecute newspapers, there's still a reason to have libel law. And we do kind of ex- live in this world now of outrage culture. And we, we, people seem to love the idea, especially on Twitter, of bringing people down. But obviously, it's incredibly damaging, like the John Ronson book, Say You've Been Publicly Shamed. It's incredibly, incredibly damaging to bring somebody down for a story that is completely untrue. Yeah. So there's a reason these laws exist. And there's a reason sometimes newspapers or, or you know, the BBC or Channel 4 can't I mean, say the, these the, things. The danger that. for some of these blogs is they do make money. They are established businesses. They are there. And at the moment, a lot of the companies just think it's not worth it. They're so small. So they won't bother If they them. get the hang of the fact that they have enough traffic, etc., and that the image is catching on, yeah. that will change. And so they may have a bubble where they can act like they are. So they may be liable before to Before be places come in. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's a huge access to justice question because essentially anyone big and aggressive enough to get a good lawyer, everyone's got to be careful with. I mean as we saw with the pretty terrible Telegraph front page about um, a sort of senior student union official in Cambridge. Um, She had made some recommendations on how to change a curriculum to sort of, frankly, be sort of less colonial. Mm. And that had done as, um, you know, um, Cambridge University forced to replace white authors with black ones. And then a huge picture of her face... She's a student union sabbatical officer. I mean, mm. you know, helped that she was an attractive woman, I'm sure. But that story wasn't true. She wrote an advisory report to add some black authors to a syllabus. Mm. And Cambridge went, thank you for this report. Let's do that. Why would we not do that? And yeah. the apology is tiny because she's not going to sue. So in a way, these, these big news organisations are kind of reaping their just desserts because they've been doing this so long to people that can't afford to sue that it's, it's like, you know, they're almost yeah. protecting... And, I mean, you know, there are recourses, there's stuff like that. But, I mean, you know, until... There are reasons at times not to trust mainstream media organisations and there are reasons that some audiences don't feel served by them. Mm. And, you know, if we, if we try and pretend that everything the mainstream does is great and everything fake news or alternative media does is terrible, we're only going to kind of perpetuate that problem. Mm. Thanks very much, James Paul. This episode of The Art of Post-Truth was brought to you by Soho House and Radio Wolfgang. It was presented by me, Hayden Prowse, and featured James Paul. 